Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. And before we get to our guest, Bakari Sellers, I wanted to just let you know a few ways you can help the show succeed. Shop through the links in our show notes. Use the Stacks codes whenever you shop with our partners. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on social media. We also have a Patreon page for supporters of this show. It includes our virtual book club and priority with Ask the Stacks. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. I wanted to give a special thanks to some of our most recent members of the Stacks Pack. Tibby Rorton, Janelle Rucker, Stephanie Sides, Keandra Freeman, Laura Wilson, Holly Noble, Jenna, Kara, Edna Trujillo, Anna Lichty, Rachel Newman, and Jane Zalski. Again, if you would like to join the ranks of those wonderful humans, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Okay, our guest today is Bakari Sellers, author of My Vanishing Country. In 2006, Bakari burst on the political scene at 22 years old as the youngest state representative in the South Carolina legislature and the youngest African-American elected official in the United States. He is currently a political analyst at CNN. Today, we talk about the civil rights movements of the past and the present, as well as his struggles in getting his book published and a lot more. Remember, we will be discussing Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe for the Stacks Book Club on June 24th with our guest, Emma Copley-Eisenberg. Everything we discuss on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. That's enough jibber-jabber from me. Let's get to talking with Bakari Sellers. All right, here I am with Bakari Sellers. Bakari, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an awesome opportunity. And I, as a new author, thank you for lending me your platform. I'm very excited to talk to you. You may be a new author, but you definitely are you know, a known quantity in the world. So I feel like maybe <laughs> you're lending me your platform, but we can you know, discuss that later. Um, we always start here in about 30 seconds or less. Can you tell us about your book, My Vanishing Country? Sure. My Vanishing Country, it's about the trauma and pain of being black in America. Um, We document from the Orangeburg Massacre, where my father was shot and imprisoned, all the way through the Charleston Massacre, the highs and lows of being elected, uh, the youngest black, the youngest black elected official in the country, um, through, uh, you know, some of the lows of of dealing with the birth of my twins and my wife almost dying. And so uh, it's it's the world through the eyes of um, being the son of a civil rights movement. 
Yeah. So before we dive in any deeper, I have to tell you, I am newly the mother of twins. So I was. Oh my feeling, goodness. How old are your twins? They just turned five months. So they're, they're December, <sighs> 2019 and yours, I feel like you said were January, 2019. They're, so they're like almost a year apart. They are January, 2019, January 7th. Um, and you know, while we're chatting, I'm just, it was such a blessing. We had such a tough year last year. People are asking me how we're doing during COVID uh, in quarantine. And, you know, every day that my children are healthy, we just count it as a blessing. My mm. wife, um, my wife, uh, at, I talk about it in one of the chapters of my book, why are the strongest women in the world dying? But she, uh, nearly bled out. She hemorrhaged. She lost seven units of blood. Um, we, it was just, she, I, and a lactation specialist, um, in the hospital together. And, um, she began to pass out and vomit and I had to yell and scream. They brought the crash teams in. She spent um, four or five hours in surgery. And uh, and uh, she spent the first 36 hours of the kid's life in ICU. We had to roll them down in the little, uh, you know, the little incubation type yeah. tubes to, to ICU just so their mother could hold them. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever given what I call the college prayer, but um, I said it so often, you know, um, dear Lord, if you get me through this, I promise I'll never do X again. <laughs> yeah. um, so I gave that all night. Um, yeah. but they just, you know, the doctors just came in and they just gave me these little bottles and they were like, here, and I Good had luck. two babies. Yeah. yeah. It was, I've... it was a mess. And then two months later, um, my daughter got diagnosed with biliary atresia, which is a very rare disease that, you know, you get diagnosed with in the first 90 days of life. Um, and she had to get a liver transplant last September. So, you know, this quarantine is nothing for us. We're just so happy that everybody's happy and healthy. Yeah, And, um, you know, that's the blessing that we take. I bet. I mean, reading that part of your book, it comes at the end, but reading that section, I was obviously, you know, for, for feeling like I could relate, you know, to being the parent of twins and like the, being in the hospital and remembering, you know, and I just couldn't even imagine the fear and the, it's like supposed to be the most exciting day of your life. It's the best day of your life, you know, this exciting change and having that all of a sudden flipped on its head and, you know, hearing you describe it in the book was really, really moving. Um, especially because, you know, so often in the news, we see these headlines or we read these articles about, you know, black women are dying disproportionately in childbirth and, you know, but actually hearing it from such a personal perspective, it was very, very moving. So, I mean, thank you for sharing that. So it was, it's interesting because I tried to add some historical perspective to the contours of race that I was discussing. Mm -hmm. um, but I also tried to overlay the politics of the issue. Right. And then the nuance is that if when you read the book, you realize after reading it that it's not really a partisan book at all. Right. Um, it's political, but it's not partisan. Right. And um, that was that some of the nuance because I wanted to make it as evergreen and something that people could read. And I wanted it to be more palatable to a, to a wide audience while still, you know, being unabashed and telling my truth. Right. So one of the things that I kind of took from the book was that it is a combination of both memoir and kind of sociology, right? Like the the story of being black, being a black man in the American South and also your specific story. How did you decide to kind of weave those two pieces together? Why was that important for you to do in writing your memoir? 
Well, because my my political perspective, my cultural perspective, my social perspective is is all rooted in the fact that I am a child of the civil rights movement. Mm. I can't I can't separate that. And so I am attempting to analyze things through that lens. And I wanted this book. So when I when when I was writing this book, one of the things I wanted this book to do was be something that we could have conversations around. Mm. Like I, I want black folk to read this book and get a sense of pride and hope. I want white folk to read this book and get a sense of understanding, mm. right? Because in this world, you can teach people biology, you can teach people arithmetic, you can teach them the English language, but you can't teach them blackness. Right. And I never expected that my book would come out during a pandemic. Right. I mean, we had book tours set up all around the world. And I'm mm. here I am not leaving the house. One, mm. because I have an immunosuppressed daughter, but two, just because I ain't crazy. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> so, you know, you have you have all of these various things. And now this book, it just seems to speak to the ills that we're facing. And I wanted it to be something that um, I wanted it to be something that we could that, that we could go to and point to and utilize as a conversation starter about the most difficult conversation we have in this country, which is race. Right. I mean, and I think it should be said, I guess, just for context for our listeners, we're recording this on June 1st and it's, you know, the Monday after this weekend that we've had that, you know, was a lot of unrest all over the country and now also places in the world. So in this moment, I mean, I was finishing your book, I believe on Wednesday, which was, I think, the first day of protests in Minneapolis. So, I mean, for me, finishing the story that you've written, it felt even more just like of this moment. And obviously you could never have imagined that this exact thing would be going on. But I mean, I'm curious, I'm sure you thought that something similar would happen again, given the fact that you, you know what it's like to be black in America. Yeah. And that's the troubling part. Um, and that's what we want to change. So, you know, for me, it's, um, this is cyclical. Um, Mm -hmm. and most white people in this country, most people, not just white people, most people only look at race through the lens of their own lifetime. Right. And, you know, if you're a 40 year old white man, you're looking at the last 40 years, you can say, oh my God, we've gotten. And so what I wanted to do is show the progress, but also show the fact we have such a long way to go. I mean, I I connected to the fact that my father's story in the movement starts with Emmett Till in 1955. Um, my story has not just that Emmett Till, you know, foundation, but it also has, you know, Trayvon, it has Alton Sterling, it has Eric Gardner, it has my friend Clemente Pinckney in the Charleston church. And so um, I try to build this whole, um, how should I say it? I try to build this whole context, this historical context, so people understand where we're coming from. Yeah. So your father was a civil rights leader, and I think that oftentimes the way that it's taught um, in history, at least for people, I think you and I are very close in age, but for people of kind of our generation, this millennial generation at least, is that these civil rights leaders, that they don't exist anymore, that those people are, like we don't have that now. Um, Like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or people like your father or Stokely Carmichael. So my question to you is kind of, do you feel like that's true? And if it is true that there aren't really the same kind of civil rights leaders like do you see a way for us to bring that back or do we even think that would be effective in this world that we're living in now 
So one of the things I write in my book, and you know, when you write, you go back and you have these moments like, man, that was, that was actually good. Like, well, I don't know what you were doing at that moment <laughs> when you wrote that, but that was some fire on the paper. And yes. one, of the things, one of the things that I wrote that stuck out was the lesson my father taught me. Um, and it was, um, heroes walk among us, mm. you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't necessarily ascribe to the Messiah complex. Right. Um, you know, my father wanted me to know, he raised me, my brother and sister and everyone that, you know, we had an open door policy in the rural South. Everybody came in. He wanted us to know you didn't have to be Martin, Malcolm or Rosa. Those right. weren't the only ones. You right. Know, there was a Majeska. There was a, there was a Sarah May. There was a Ella. There was a Cleve and a Stokely and a Julian and a Marion and a, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And so we have to we have to teach people these stories so they don't think they have to be the greatest orator of all time and be uh, Dr. King. And they don't have to have, you know, that spiritual center that guides and pushes them because some of us are still on our journeys like Malcolm X. Mm. And they don't have to have the fortitude and infrastructure to allow them that courage to sit like Rosa. Like you can be an average individual and go out and change the world. There's nothing to stop you from doing that. Right. Do you think that that Messiah complex of what you called it, do you think that 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 is actually, you know, by design so that people feel like they can't do the work? No question. Yeah. It's a combination of two things. It is by design, but it's also a self-limitation we put on our, like Mm. there are, there are a lot of us who are waiting on the next Martin, Malcolm, Rosa, or Barack. Mm -hmm. My next book, hopefully, if this goes well, (laughs) which is one (laughs) of the reasons why I'm encouraging everybody who's listening, this shameless plug to go out and get my vanishing country. Uh, You know, I, I want to talk about the expectations we put on ourselves because now every black politician, for better or worse, is going to be compared to uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. Right. And I just don't find that to be fair. Right. I think it's unattainable, not because I know them, but we've deified them. And, right. and you know, now that is something politically, uh, maybe, but in terms of just sheer grandeur and ideology, it's, it's, um, it's just something that, that we set a bar that is just impractical. And so I, I prefer to, to cultivate another generation of of, of, of Julian Bonds, you know, and, and mm. I think that's possible because we have a lot of, you know, the Andrew Gillums, the Stacey Abrams, the Mandela Barnes, you know, we have all of these people who are doing the great work, the Steve Benjamins, the Frank Scotts, the Randall Wolfens, mayors. Right. I mean, we had these people um, who are doing the great work. And by the way, like uh, Michelle Obama still sold 24,000 books last week. I'm like, what 24,000 people right. Do have, not don't have, have, have a book. book. <laughs> <laughs> I think this every week I open the New York Times and see the bestseller list. I'm like, how are there people still buying, buying this book? Like, where have you I'm been? Not, I thought I was like, I'm pretty sure this book is retired. Like, everybody should already have it now. But um, no. So, you know, I just I think that we. I think that especially now um, we're starting to to see a shift in the way that we're thinking critically about leadership and the demands we have on our leadership. Right. Because I also, I mean, in my own thinking about it, part of the reason I asked you is because I've I've been thinking about it a lot this week, but also in the last year or so, is that our world is, our America is very different technology wise. Like our relationship to locations are very different and much more, you know, in back when our parents were younger, like you might 
go away to college for a little bit, but you were going back home to these communities. And now people don't necessarily live where they're from. People can be anywhere at any time. And so this idea of like community leaders rising up um, as, you know, these handful of national figures, I don't necessarily think that that's something that's even really possible in the same kind of way because people are more, you know, are able to move around the country much more. I don't know if you think that that might play anything, play into it a little bit, but people who get traction become national in a way that maybe, you know, the everyday person wasn't becoming national in the past. I also think that there is a level of uh, interconnectivity Mm. that means that it's, and it's hard to explain. Like I come from a place where I started, I didn't start on CNN, right? Right. I, I started in the state house. I started knocking on doors in the poor rural South. Um, but there's a book that I do ascribe to. I had to read it. It was the, it was my governor, Republican Mark Sanford. He's well known for claiming he was on the Appalachian Trail in Argentina. The Appalachian mm, Trail yes, ain't that of big, of course. <laughs> um, but he used to he used to always cite Thomas Friedman. The world is flat, mm. and you know the world is now fundamentally flat. Not like Kyrie Irving, the world is flat, right. but fundamentally flat <laughs> because of the interconnectivity that we all have. You know the fact that we are. Um, the fact that we are all able to uh, do the technology, we're all able to be connected to, to those people around the world. And what it means is that you're no longer competing with people in your own state, your own county. I mean, your own region, you're competing with people around the world. And that also um, impacts leadership in the way that leadership leaders are able to rise um, or fall sooner than they ever could. Right. Um, so in writing this memoir, this is your first book. So, you know, it's a new experience for you. Were there things that you felt like you learned about yourself through this process that maybe you didn't know when you set out to write the book? I don't know about it. it I don't know about learned, but it was definitely cathartic, um, mm. therapeutic. I don't know if those are synonyms or not. Somebody smarter than me is about to tell me, but <laughs> it felt good. Uh, you know, I, I come out in the book and talk about my anxiety. I talk about a lot of the issues with my mom and, you know, the trauma that it is to, to live this life. And, um, you know, I just feel it, it made me feel good. And when I when I when I put the words on the page down and the book was done, it was funny because my to a to a person, my mother, father, sister and brother all call me. And they're like, you're not going to let me read the book before it comes out. Hmm. Like we're talking like 10 days ago, two weeks ago. And I'm like, um, no. And I was like, this Thanksgiving is going to be awkward. And they were like, if you get invited. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was just a, it was just a, um, it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, I, I think I knew everything about myself, but to get it out, understanding that everyone in the world would have an opportunity to read it has been something that cleanses your spirit. Yeah. Did you let anybody in your life read it before it came out? The whole thing? Um, no. No. Okay. No. And I was on, I don't let people read my speeches before I give them. I okay. also don't let people keep my speeches. Okay. Uh, you know, I just, I want, you know, I, I, I believe in love and I, the people that I love, I want them to read the impact of the words when it's meant for them to read it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I respect that a lot. So, One of the things that I really liked about the book is that, you know, this is your story and these are the people in your life, but you feature sort of like a different main person, a main character from your life in each 
chapter, right? So when we talk about the the chapter we talked about about black women dying, you know, that was really centered around your wife. One of the earlier chapters was centered around your friend, um, or many of them are centered around your friend. Like one of the first chapters is centered around your father. Why was it important for you to tell you know your truths through these other people's experience? You know, the weird part is when you're writing books, you never realize how many characters you truly have in your life until mm, you write a book. Wow. <laughs> you know how you sit around and you're you're like hanging out with folk? Right. And you're like, man, that person is a hell of a character. You never realize how nuanced <laughs> how nuanced they are until you write it. And um, you know, from my dad to Pop, Pop is my favorite character. Yes. Um, I love Pop to death. Um, to Jared, who's my best friend, to my wife, um, you know, to the the stories of the young of my classmates who've grown with me, mm. um, you know, all the way to Sadie and Stokely and Kai. Kai, I think, is an amazing character mm-hmm. in my book because of her strength when her mom was going through her her uh, her issues. And so I just wanted to, you know, my I one of the things, and I don't know if this is a science or like anything or like a literary technique. I I don't claim to be a, I'm an author now, but I don't claim to be a writer, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, But I I wanted to give everyone a voice. Mm -hmm. I didn't want this to just be my story per se, but I wanted to give them a voice as well. Right. Um, Another thing that you do really beautifully in this book is that I don't feel like, you know, I, I feel like I got to know you but I also feel like you do a very good job of kind of explaining things for people who might be outside of of your experience, right? So like there might be a little explanation of like a slang term or or whatever. Oh, and yeah. I'm I'm curious if you why you felt compelled to give those explanations. Was that something that you really wanted to do, or is that just something that like feels right? Because I know a lot of authors from all different groups. Um, sometimes some people feel very strongly about explaining, and some people feel very strongly about not doing it. So I'm curious where the thought process was for you. Well, for me, I'm not Cornell West, right? Sure. And so I just can't come out and, and dump my vocabulary or <laughs> the vocabulary of the world out on like 10 pages and say, go sort it out. Right. And I wanted this to be a book that people read and wanted to read. And I wanted it to be a book that a, a CEO could read and his son. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a book that people who didn't quite graduate from college can read and understand. Right. And not only that, but I wanted my book to be a learning experience. The most of the, the most I've get, I've received so many messages from around the world of people who are just like, you know, I didn't know. I mean, it hurts my heart when people tell me I didn't know about the Orangeburg massacre until I read your book. Right. I mean, that, that breaks my heart like each time. Um, but I've heard about like uh, shotgun houses and, uh, no seeing bugs and, mm. you know, just the culture of the South that I right. explore. Right. Um, that is very interesting and intriguing to so many people. Um, and so I, I just, I wanted people to take something from it. Man. And if this book touches one person, then um, I, I'll deem it a success. I definitely think it's a success by those standards. I'll take that. I will take that. Yeah, I think so. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So another, I mean, I keep telling you, like, there's this part that I love, this part I love. I, the book is really good. And so there's lots of parts that I really, really loved and appreciated. Um, you talk about, you mentioned this earlier, but you talk about your anxiety. And I, I'm curious because you, you know, it, it's something that is starts early for you in your life. Like you attribute it to your father's experiences um, at the Orangeburg massacre, massacre in the 60s. So it's like something that is almost, you know, born into you in some ways in the way that you explain it, is it common that you've experienced that other black politicians have also have this kind of anxiety? Cause you talk a lot about like this idea of this fear of like losing or of something being taken away. And so I'm curious if that's common in your experience with others. I, it's, it's a fear. Yeah. Um, and you know that I do, I come out and, you know, people say my, these fears are irrational, but I don't, that's, that's the definition of anxiety, Sure. but I don't, I don't find it to be irrational because I live with it every day. Um, but I do think that whether or not it's Bernice King or myself or Michael Julian Bond or, um, you know, young, young James Foreman, all of the people who are children of the movement, I think that we all have these issues. I, I'll tell you, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I talk about the death of Al in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my middle school friend and one of my classmates, um, from then he said, I, he said, it's so amazing. He's 36 and 35. He's 37. I'm 35. 
He said, man, all these years, and I thought I was the only one dealing with these issues from his mm-hmm. death. This happened when we were like 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the relationships that you weren't weren't able to, I mean, you weren't able to flourish because this has been stuck in your head for 26 years. Right. That, feel, that feels good as a writer. But like to everyone listening, I, I don't know if you have anybody who's struggling to write or who wants to write or who's writing. Um, even if you're writing fiction, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but let it speak a truth, right? Mm. Always let it speak a truth. And if you're, if the characters are even fictional characters, I mean, there is an element of speaking truth to power mm-hmm. that we can find even in, in fiction. And so that's, that's what I tried to do in that. And you talked to me about just bearing it all. I just bared it all for the world to see. It yeah. feels so much better. So now I don't <laughs> yeah. know why people are staring at me. Are they staring at me because I'm a weird kid growing up from the South that they read about? Uh, I mean, are they staring at me from CNN? But, it, you know, I don't really care because people know everything about me now. Right. Right. That's a great point. Uh, you're like, I don't have any secrets. What is the what was the hardest part for you about writing this book? And then what parts came easily? So between me and you. <laughs> You know, I, I've told, I've shared this story a, a bunch because it's it's a story of perseverance. I think um, I got turned down for this book between twenty and thirty times. Wow! But the the weird part is that I wasn't trying to write a um, I wasn't trying to write a memoir. Right, but you say I, that in the book, don't you? In the I epilogue, say that in, in the uh, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, I somehow know that information. <laughs> yeah, but see, the, the inside part is that I, I wasn't trying to write a, I was, everybody on, on TV, all the political pundits, they write these political books. Right. What right. it means to grow up in the age of Trump, right? Right, right, you know, right. Trumpocracy and right. um, Trump, Trumpocalypse and right. all of those things by my friends, <laughs> David, David Frum. Those are real names, actually good, good books by David Frum. Um, and so you, I wanted to write one of those books and nobody would buy it. Huh. Literally, nobody would buy it. Why not? Um, nobody. I mean, they. Why would they want to hear from a black Democrat in the South when they um, could just go and hear from a former Republican or something like that? I see. I mean, they could they could actually get get a better perspective. Uh, right. They didn't want my perspective. Right. But I, I I even got I even got people to help me write sample chapters and proposals. Hmm. Um, got turned on so much, and finally Tracy Sherrod from Amistad. Okay. Um, we went to Smith's in um, it's a, a restaurant in New York. I don't know I much love, about New I York. I love that place. I lived there for eight years. Yeah, I, you know, I stay. I'm a, I'm country country. I stay in my little five block radius right, when I go to New York. <laughs> <laughs> and she sat me down and she was like, "Man, ain't nobody gonna buy this. So tell me about yourself." <laughs> hmm. And I said, "Yes, ma'am." And I told her, and she said, "Well, you got to come back to, um, you got to come back to." And meet Judith Her- uh, You got to meet the headquarters and meet Judith Kerr and Patrick Bass from Harper Collins. And mm-hmm. uh, Judith is the boss boss. She's over Harper One. Okay. Um, and Tracy is over Amistad. And Patrick is my editor. So it kind of goes Patrick, Tracy, Judith. Okay. And I sat down with them and they had just released uh, Barracoon. The, yes. Uh, oh, incredible. Zorino, oh, my God. And, um, you know, they gave me some copies and I mean, it's just brilliant. And so good. Um, they were like, we're going to give you a chance. And I'll share this with you. This wasn't in the book, but okay. Kaylee McEnany, who's the press secretary yeah, now. Yeah, of course. Um, she got a book deal and we, we used to hang out all the time. We would go at it hard on CNN and then we would just go have a glass of wine and sushi afterwards and kind of talk about life. And she was telling me about her book deal and I was telling her my struggle. And she was like, yeah, I got $150,000 for my book deal. 
I was like, man, that's great. And so when Tracy asked me when we got done with our meeting in HarperCollins, she said, well, how much do you want? I said, Tracy, I want $151. (laughs) (laughs) $151,000. I want $1 more than Kaylee McEnany. I want everybody to know I did not get that high, but (laughs) that was my ass. I wanted just to be in that same stratosphere with her. Um, and they gave me a chance and they believed in me this entire time and they've given me the infrastructure. You know, last week we missed the list. This mm. week we're hopeful we'll make it. Feel good about next week, definitely making it. But yeah. Um, you know, I I um I worked so hard just to get this opportunity. You asked me the most difficult part. Worked so hard to get this opportunity that I really wanted to be a New York Times bestseller. And the yeah. reason why is not just so I can put it in my bio, because I'm definitely going to put it in my bio. Yes. But, yes. but I, want, I want other young people of color. I want other people from the South, other you know people who grew up in these poor, poor communities to be able to share their stories. If there wasn't a book like Nobody, if there wasn't a book like The Other West Moore, mm. there wouldn't be able to be a, a, in my vanishing country. Right. So that was the most difficult part. And the other thing was I had to write this book in four to five months. Oh, wow. Um, not in, <laughs> we did all of that and sped it up because of, and it's crazy, but now we have a pandemic. <laughs> uh, but we, we did it to prevent from having to compete with uh, the big dog whose book comes out in the fall. Whose book um, comes out in the fall? Barack Obama. Oh, I didn't even know it was coming in the fall. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> I see. You know, it's been, it, so we, we did all of that. That was, that was the most difficult part. Hmm. Um, the easy part, uh, the easy part was putting my story on paper. I wrote, I sat down for 15 minutes a day, wow. um, every day. And some days were longer, of course, mm-hmm. but at least a minimum of 15, 15 minutes. That's discipline. Um, that's necessary. Yeah. You have to be intentional and purposeful. Right. Well, you know, I talk obviously to a lot of different authors and one of the things that is always really shocking to me, and I guess I should just get over it because I've been doing this for a while now and it's always shocks me, is everyone is, does their writing really differently. Everyone comes at it uh, from a different perspective, from a different, you know, what works for them, how their creative process works. So you saying that, you know, that's like one of the more regimented um, writing like writing styles or writing commitments that I've I've ever heard actually on this podcast is like the 15 minutes a day. I've definitely heard people who write a certain number of words. They try to write a certain number of words a day, but hearing that you sit down, that you sat down every day and committed at least 15 minutes, I think that's really interesting. And, and not everyone does that. Yeah. I mean, I, I did that. It, it was helpful for me. That was first. I said, I did it cause I travel a lot. Mm. Um, you know, I'm always on the road. I sent a lot of emails to myself. Mm. Um, I did a lot of voice notes, a lot of uh, sketches and outlines in my phone. I mean, there's no reason to let a, a, a thought be fleeting, right. you know? And right. so, um, and that I've been doing that recently, um, preparing for what I hope is another opportunity to write again. So. Okay. I like that. And you said that you wrote all over the place and stuff, but when you really sat down to actually like write, you know, that like actually write the book as opposed to writing to yourself or getting your ideas down? Were you, can you write anywhere? Were you in a specific place? I can write place? absolutely anywhere. anywhere. What about I don't have the, sound? I don't have the like, is I, it I let, music? I don't have to you? be, I don't have to, let, I can write with, I can write in chaos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess it's the gift of being an elected official for so long. You're used to just being in, in oversized adult kindergarten classes. Right. Um, that, you know, in chaos. So, <laughs> 
uh, you know, a lot of times I'd write outside. I, um, you know, I'd write inside with my wife yelling at me in the background to do something else. But I always had to, my, my thing was, I mean, I'm, I am not as disciplined in everything I do, but my thing was making sure that I sat down for at least that 15 minute period. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Do you have any go-to, this is a very important question that is the most important question to me personally, any go-to snacks or beverages for your writing? So people think they write well drunk. They okay. Don't. So, um, so. <laughs> let me just tell you, uh, but I, I was not, I, I, I did, I did uh, always um, write down thoughts on Wild Turkey or Jameson. Okay. And usually the thoughts were decent, but I had to go back and clean them up. Okay. Uh, you have to do a lot more editing of yourself. And I do not ascribe to editing yourself. I mean, read your work to proof it. Right. But like, if you are an author or a writer, you also ain't an editor. Those are those are sure. two different jobs, sure. right? I know people who try to cut. They're like, let me put it down and then pick it up and edit. No, no. Um, <laughs> uh, but but snacks. I don't snack. I eat full meals. Okay. I'm a I'm a southern boy. I like leftovers, like full leftovers. My lunch. My dad used to make us a hot lunch during the summer, like every day. My dad is from the south, and he used to make himself lunch every day. Every day. Yeah. 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 So. Um, you know, I just, I, I just try to, you know, I did a lot of diet Coke okay. more than I should. Um, but it was a, it was a fun process. I even wrote, a, I had to write, you know, some in the hospital too, right. um, as we were, as we were finishing up. Um, mm. uh, and so that was uncomfortable, but I had a lot of time sure. and I, 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 um, I, although I outlined and sketched the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just kind of wrote chapters as they came. Um, you know, that was, that was, that was the easiest way to go about doing it. So then um, how did you put it together? How did you, did you all like, cause it's pretty much chronological. So how, did chron- you always I, want it to be like that? You no, know, I didn't. I okay. didn't know how I wanted it to be. That's why you have good editors. Yeah. That's why Patrick Bass is really good. And, and you got to know your audience. Like I, I always thought that this could be a book and I believe it to be the case that could be read by any audience, anybody, mm-hmm. because it's an educational book. It, it, it's it it comes with it with an unvarnished truth, mm. but yet it's not it's not offensive or aggressive. If mm. that makes sense, yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I did all of that, and um, you know, Patrick allowed me um, something because I even though I wanted it to be that unvarnished truth that wasn't offensive or aggressive that everyone could read, I also knew my number one audience was going to be black women. And Patrick Bass came from Essence Magazine, um, mm. which, is, as you know, is a, a huge publication for, for African-American women. And um, I just wanted it to I wanted it to read well. Um, and I felt like if it could read well, um, geared towards that audience, I think everybody would enjoy it. And I think that test case has been proven pretty accurate. Yeah. Why did you think that that would be your audience? Um, one, because they're, they're huge purveyors of books, especially for African-American authors. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I also knew the stories I wanted to tell. And, you know, my larger themes in this book, it, are, this is a love letter. Sure. All right. And that's the way I looked at it. I looked at it as a love letter to my father, a love letter to Pop. I looked at it to, as a love letter to um, the South, a love letter to black women. Mm. And um you know, just looking at looking at it through that lens was was very important for me. Yeah. Um, mm, 
Let me think. About just it. ask it. You don't have well, to worry no, about being I, Don Lemon. Just go ahead and ask it. I'm definitely not Don Lemon. I wish. <laughs> I wish. No, I, I guess like when you sit down to like write this book and to write this story and you know that people might come, many people might come to this book with different you know, opinions about you and thoughts about you, whether they know you from CNN, whether they were your constituents, whether they follow you on Twitter, just because you keep popping up on their feed. Like, how do you kind of corral all of those preconceived notions going into the book? Like, did you think about that at all? Or did you just say, I'm going to write my story and we'll just see what happens? No, I figured they would mesh. Okay. Um, because I, I think that on Twitter, um, um, I think that on Twitter, on CNN, in my politics, I've always tried to be extremely truthful and honest, even when I mess up, right. and even as I grow. And I think in this book, you see me, I mean, you see me and I mean, I'm very vulnerable. Thing. I mean, I, I want to be, I wanted the pages to, I mean, the channel, my inner Jay-Z, I kind of wanted the pages to cry. Hmm. The, I, it, it was hard reading this book right. um, for Audible. Hmm. Um, and you're a big crier. I am a big crier. That's and like, it was, you talk about it a lot in the book. And then a few days ago, I was Googling you and it was like, Bakari Sellers cries on TV. And I was like, oh my God, he is a big crier. <laughs> I told you, I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's my truth. I love it. I'm here for yeah. that. I mean, not that you're hurting, but I'm here for your display of emotion and yeah. I'm here for your yeah. self-awareness. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just... Um, you know, I wanted, I wanted that pain. I wanted that honesty. I wanted that truth to show in the pages. And I think we were able to accomplish that. Right. So you, you keep kind of alluding to this second book. Do you know what that book might look like? What it might be about? I want to write one with my wife. Um, and I want to write one with my best friend, Jared, uh, that that would be more of a political book. Okay. Um, but I just think my wife and I, we have so many stories to share about going through this experience with Sadie, Mm. um, loving and losing, um, growing, uh, you know, her small business, me on TV, balancing that. I think it can be helpful to a lot of people. Yeah. I want to ask you about being on TV. Sure. So this is right now is like a very volatile time in America. And you are on CNN and, you know, you're often brought on to discuss issues of race and and politics and, you know, news things as someone does on CNN. How does it feel as a human to have to sometimes like have arguments and discussions about things that are not equal, but are presented as equal. Right. So like, to like, you know, um, the president, you know, the other day just called a, a bunch of people thugs and, you know, a bunch of black people thugs. And then on the others, there's this other side of the issue. And like, you have to sit there and kind of mediate that thing like what is the toll of that on you as a human like having to pretend that the sides are fair and balanced or that both sides are equal i don't have to pretend i can go up there and be vulnerable and tell my truth um you know and be honest i mean i think that's what that's why i'm there i don't right. i don't go and I also you know as i write in the book you know you you can't argue with fools because people watching can't tell the difference sure Sure. You know, for me, I always just try to push forward and, and no matter who I'm on with, just tell my truth. Um, and in these moments, in these moments, provide some context. I think maybe I didn't phrase it right. I guess I don't mean that you would be playing both sides of the issue, but more like having to have these conversations with, you know, quote unquote fools. Like, 
is that cha- is it challenging for you to kind of like sit up there and listen to people try to tell you that the sky's not blue sometimes? Like, is that hard work to do? And like, how how do you mediate yourself in those moments? I think maybe is more of the question. Well, I mean, I, I think going, it's not many of us on TV and we represent so much. So you have right. to center your emotions, right? Right. Um, and, but you also realize you can't have any bad days. Right. And you just try to, with all every ounce of, every ounce of humility you had, lend a voice um, to the voiceless and lend a voice to the unheard. I mean, that's what I try to do every night. And that's, that's especially during this, you know, it's, it's, it's not about protesting in the streets. It's about the why. It's about, mm. you know, what, what King called rioting is the language of the unheard, explaining that to viewers so they understand. Right. Right. Do you get a lot of, I know that we all talk about like internet trolls, like the negative feedback. Do you get a lot of positive feedback as well? Um, do you get not any on positive? Twitter. No, of course <laughs> Twitter. not on Twitter. But I just yeah, mean in no, general, like, do you feel yeah, like I think Twitter's people... not real life. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that I feel good about where I am and people appreciating the words that I speak and the truth that I try to share. I, I do feel good about that. Um, and you know, my parents are proud and my wife is proud and my children are proud. And mm. so understanding that I can be comfortable and sleep tight. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question about the, the country since we're sitting on this kind of crazy moment okay, and sure. I, I get to pretend to be Don Lemon for the day. Uh, <laughs> um, my question is, so this episode we're recording on June 1st, but it will come out in three weeks, like the, it, towards the end of June. And so what do you think as someone who is, you know, been an elected official, have, has represented other people, as well as someone who talks about the state of the country all the time, what do you think right now you want to remind people in three weeks that they maybe will have forgotten? Well, one, well, one, this is not about, um, this is not about George Floyd. This is about years of systemic racism and injustice that's boiling over. Um, racism is killing us not just through COVID, but it's also killing us on the streets. I mean, they're lynching us before our eyes. Racism also is not for black folk to cure. Right. Um, and uh, we have to begin to have some critical conversations. You don't let it be another hashtag. You don't let it be another. What, what usually happens is there's a murder, a hashtag, um, pain, violence, um, followed by grief, memorials. We move on about our business mm. um, and we have to change this vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you hope we'll be in three weeks from now? With some tangible change. Um, I really don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I'm hopeful and I have faith, but this thing, protest is messy. Right. And it, and it moves quickly. And right. we shall see. Yeah. I mean, it's such a crazy, like I said earlier, it's a crazy moment and your book just fits so perfectly in this moment. So people who are listening right now, like if you haven't picked up the book yet, if you haven't read it, it it is comforting and also um, kind of, you know, and excites a a social justice bone in your body, right? Like in my reading yes. it, I was like, oh, God, I wish everybody had it. I wish everybody was talking about this right now. And so if you haven't picked up the book yet, it's just, you know, one, it's your one story, but like I said, it encompasses so many characters and it's indicative of so much more. And there's the sociology perspective of kind of a bigger picture of being black in America. So I just think it is like, I'm glad you sped up the release of the book because it came out 
I didn't speed this, up the release. I just, I mean, they, this was the, this was the release date. Oh, they right. right. But they, they made, made you speed it, it up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that someone had the foresight to tell you to do that because I know they could not have predicted this exact moment, but I feel like your book was born into the world, like in the moment that, that we needed it. Well, I agree. And I just want to thank you for this opportunity and um, encourage everyone to go out and, and get my vanishing country. I gave okay. it absolutely everything I have. I have one more question for you before I let you go. Sure. Sure. For people who love your book, what are other books that you think they should pick up that might be in conversation with the work that you've done? Uh, Healing Politics by Abdul Al-Sayed, um, who's a colleague of mine on CNN, he for governor of Michigan. Okay. Um, and during this time, of course, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist mm. um, is a, you know, it's probably going to be near number one on the bestsellers list. Yeah. Just come back around. The Other Westmore is a good book during this time. Nobody by Mark Lamont Hill is a good book during this time. And you really want to learn something. Go back to the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, I recommend that book all the time around these, around this part. Um, So incredible. So incredible. Well, Bakari, thank you so, so much for being here. Again, the book is called My Vanishing Country. I will link to his book and everything else in the show notes. You can grab your copy right there. Um, Thank you so much for being here, Bakari. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, you too. And everybody else, we'll see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you again to Bakari for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to Allison Sari and Courtney Nobile for setting up this interview. Remember, we will be reading Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe for the Stacks Book Club on June 24th with Emma Copley Eisenberg. Find everything we discussed today in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and support this show, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tequiriches. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 